The night was dark as Alvin trudged through the dimly lit game trail. The moon was bright enough, but he could barely see ten feet in front of him. He heard small critters scurrying away from him in the underbrush. He tripped on a tree root that grew across the path, but caught himself. The sweet aroma of whiskey lingered on his breath and where he had spilled some on his shirt. He looked over at his left sleeve that was stained with black blood spatters. Alvin wiped his eyes, stood up, and continued on. He sniffed back a few cries as he remembered just 30 minutes ago when his best friend had been shot right next to him over a poker game. Why did he have to die so young? Alvin had known him since they were young teens, and they had shared many a bottle of moonshine, whiskey, and card games together. Almost there, Alvin thought to himself as he quickened his pace. He was headed for home, where his nine remaining siblings and mama would most likely be asleep. In the past, whenever he had stumbled inside after a night of gambling, drinking, and sometimes fighting, the house would be quiet, and he could curl up on a bed next to one of his brothers. He carried no lantern, but easily found his way to the front door of his family's small cabin. Even if it were a moonless night, he could have navigated down the familiar path with his eyes closed. As he quietly closed the door, a creak from the rocking chair near the fire startled him. He heard the unmistakable sigh of his mama as she stood up and looked over at him. Alvin's eyes were still wet from the tears he had shed. As he looked at his God-fearing mama, his shoulders started to quiver. I'm so glad you're home, Alvin, he heard her whisper. The only answer Alvin could muster was a silent sigh. Instead of wiping away his tears, he allowed them to freely flow. He had lost his paw years ago, and now his best friend. His ma held his face between her two calloused, strong hands. He knew that she could smell the alcohol in his clothes and his breath. She knew exactly where he had come from, that he was a fighter, a gambler, and a drunk. But she also knew that he was so much better than that. She took a breath and then spoke. Alvin, you need to stop being with the wrong people. You need to quit running from the Lord and get right with him. Turn away and be a man like your pa and grandpa before you. Although her words were stern, they held an essence of compassion and persuasion in them. Alvin was already heartbroken about witnessing his best friend being shot beside him. He was already in a place of confusion, and his mama's words were exactly what he needed to find direction. After his mama's stern talking, she simply reached up and embraced him. She wasn't usually a tender woman, having raised 11 children and surviving in the Tennessee backcountry as a single mother. However, she held Alvin in that loving hug right then. Alvin's tears and sobs came out freely now. He then promised his mama that he would never touch a bottle of alcohol ever again. He would never smoke, gamble, fight, or run with the wrong group of people. That night, he dedicated his life to the Lord, and he never looked back. This podcast is about heroes in military and law enforcement. Some gave their service for America and served in the armed forces. Some have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, and others protected the local community and died in the line of duty. Our lives would be a whole lot different if it weren't for the hard work and sacrifice of these brave men and women. They could have gone on to live lives that were less dangerous. However, they dedicated themselves to your protection. 
If you ever have the pleasure of talking to one of them, they'll tell you. I'm not a hero, but I have the honor of walking beside a few. Others will say, the real heroes are those who didn't make it back home. This episode is dedicated to U.S. Army Colonel Alvin Cullum York, World War I and World War II. Alvin York was a part of Company G, 328th Infantry Regiment, 82nd Infantry Division, Tennessee National Guard. York was born in a two-room log cabin near Paul Mall in northeastern Tennessee near the Kentucky border on December 13, 1887. He was the third of 11 children born to Mary Elizabeth Brooks and William Uriah York. The York family is of English and Ulster Scots ancestry and resided in the Indian Creek area of Fentress County. Alvin's great-great-grandpa was one of the first white settlers in the area. He originally lived in a cave near the river and eventually worked as a blacksmith in the area. The Yorks were extremely impoverished, with William working as a blacksmith in the same cave his granddad worked at to supplement the family income. The men of the York family harvested food in the area, while their mother knitted all the family's clothes. The York boys attended school for only nine months out of the year and withdrew from education after about the third grade because William needed them to work the family farm and hunt small game to feed them. As it was most of the time, schools were as far away as three miles. There weren't many cleared roads, and many of the local children had to walk barefoot through game trails and over mountain passes in order to get to school. Alvin remembers going hunting with his father and brothers as a young boy. His dad was one of the best shots and taught Alvin to always make his first shot count. Bill York competed in several turkey shoots in the county, where he would usually come home as the victor with the prize of 10 cents and a headless turkey that could feed the family for weeks. Soon, Alvin was shooting almost as well as his father in the competitions, being able to shoot a turkey in the head over 150 yards away. When William died in November of 1911, Alvin helped his mother in raising his younger siblings. He was the oldest son still living in the county. His older two brothers were married, had their own families, and relocated outside of the county. To supplement the family income, Alvin's mother hired him out for odd jobs in the nearby town of Harriman. He also worked as a logger. Due to the lack of fatherly direction during his teen years, Album grew to become a violent alcoholic who was inclined to fighting in saloons. He was even arrested several times. His mother, a member of a pacifist, Protestant, Christian denomination, tried to persuade him to change his ways, but without success. Despite his history of drinking and fighting, Alvin was asked by one of his neighbors, Gracie Williams, to attend church. After attending for a while, he lent his strong voice to singing hymns and leading in the church choir. After his best friend was shot during a poker match, Alvin returned home and promised his mom that he would never touch alcohol again and turned away from his drunken lifestyle. Soon afterwards, he attended a revival meeting at the end of 1914 and committed his life to following Jesus. Northern Tennessee wasn't exposed to much of the greater outside world. The Appalachian Mountain people spread throughout the hollers in the thick backcountry would sometimes get a hold of newspapers or hear from updates, but they usually kept to themselves in their own small, closely-knit communities. Soon, railroad construction began in Harriman, 
which put many of the men to work. Alvin gladly began employment with the company and was in charge of blasting through the mountains and driving steel spikes into railroad ties up and down the mountain passes for $1.60 a day. He soon heard that the United States was involved in a great war over in Europe. Alvin was proud of his country, but his church and strong religious belief held that violence was wrong. He had put that life behind him and had no interest in grasping a gun to harm a human ever again. On June 5, 1917, at the age of 29, Alvin received a draft card, as all men between 21 and 31 years of age did. He was to report to Jamestown, Tennessee, and attend basic training near Atlanta, Georgia. He mailed the card back, telling them that he had no interest in fighting because it went against his religion. Several weeks later, he received a reply that the Church of Christ wasn't officially recognized by the U.S. government, and his request to not fight was denied. Alvin spent several nights in deep thought and contemplated on what to do about this mandate to join the U.S. Army and fight in a foreign land. He wrestled with the idea that he might have to be called on to kill men he had never met and had nothing against. On the third day of meditating on this enormous burden, Alvin felt a peace in his heart that God said it was all right to join the army and fight for his nation. He felt that he could return from war without a scratch. His mom was very distraught about this decision to leave the family behind, but Alvin was now a man, and it was his time to depart. He had never ventured outside the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee and was a bit apprehensive about going into the unknown. York served in Company G of the 328th Infantry Regiment, 82nd Infantry Division, at Camp Gordon, Georgia. He was unfamiliar with the flat, sandy terrain of Georgia. He was also the only mountain man that made up the 328th. He met men from all over the United States, all of them either being poor rural country boys or penniless city slickers. It was difficult for others to decipher Alvin's thick Appalachian draw, and he had to work hard to understand the indecipherable Italian and Greek accents of some of his bunkmates. Soon, it came time for weapons training. Many of the city boys had never held a gun before. They stared at the rifles as they didn't know the business in from the stock. However, Alvin was right at home with the weight and feel of the bolt-action rifle. Back home, his livelihood had depended on a firearm, and he soon baffled his drill sergeants at how quickly he could take a rifle apart and put it back together or shoot a bullseye from 500 yards away. His company would also do a lot of marching and hiking under the unforgiving hot Georgia sun. Many of his fellow soldiers would fall out from exhaustion, but York was used to trudging up the hills and mountains back home, and it came naturally to him. His division soon boarded a train for Boston and deployed to Europe. He had never been on such a large body of water before, as he saw the Atlantic in every direction. The men from his unit who had immigrated to the U.S., were used to the rocking back and forth of a ship. However, Alvin felt seasick every time the ship listed to the side or dropped down over the other end of a huge swell in the ocean. At that point, he wished more than ever for the familiar mountains of his hometown. After 16 days at sea, the 82nd Division arrived in Liverpool, England. Three days later, they were already in France. By this time, the soldiers had been together for quite a while, and Alvin began making a few friends and developing camaraderie. 
It seemed that most of the time the company spent in France was traveling by train to small towns in the countryside. After hiking around for a few days, they would board another train and repeat the process. Eventually, the 82nd Division was tasked with relieving the 26th Division on the Monsect sector. It was here that York and his soldiers received some final training before they were sent to the front lines and into no man's land. There, they were exposed to artillery shells and would sometimes have to don their masks when the threat of chemical weapons came. They were under the constant danger of sniper fire as well. Trench warfare was hard, and some of the other soldiers grew antsy and would venture out at night. At one point, their trenches were near a vineyard. The meager food rations weren't enough for some of the men, and they would escape at night to pick grapes from the vines. They were surprised when German artillery began firing at them from a nearby hilltop. Even after several casualties of his fellow Americans, York wasn't persuaded and braved the threat of danger to pick a few cherished grapes on his own. During lulls in battle, York pulled out a small Bible and would read it as much as he could. By the end of his time in Europe, he had read it cover to cover five times. The Americans gained a few feet of ground little by little, day by day, but would mostly stay holed up in their trenches and wait for orders. Finally, they took part in a big offensive and captured the small town of Nori. As they continued to drive forward, the enemy launched a large-scale attack. After an intense battle, the Americans came out as the victors, although they had lost many men. During an attack by his battalion to capture German positions near Hill 223 along the Dacoville rail line near chatel Chenery, France, on October 8, 1918, York's actions earned him the Medal of Honor. He later recalled, The Germans got us, and they got us right smart. They just stopped us dead in our tracks. Their machine guns were up there on the heights overlooking us and were well hidden, and we couldn't tell for certain where the terrible heavy fire was coming from, and I'm telling you they were shooting straight. Our boys just went down like the long grass before the mowing machine at home. Our attack just faded out. And there we were, lying down, about halfway across, and those German machine guns and big shells getting us hard. Under the command of Sergeant Bernard Early, four NCOs and 13 privates were ordered to infiltrate behind the German lines and take out the machine guns. The group worked their way behind the Germans and overran the headquarters of the unit, capturing a large group of German soldiers who were preparing a counterattack against the U.S. troops. Early's men were contending with the prisoners when the German machine gun fire from a nearby bridge suddenly peppered the area, killing six Americans and wounding three others, including Sergeant Early. The loss of the nine men put Corporal York in charge of the seven remaining U.S. soldiers. As his men remained undercover, guarding the prisoners, York worked his way into position to silence the German machine guns. He later recalled, and those machine guns were spitting fire and cutting down the undergrowth around me, something awful. And the Germans were yelling orders. You never heard such a racket in all of your life. I didn't have time to hide behind a tree or dive into the brush. As soon as the machine guns opened fire on me, I began to exchange shots with them. There were over 30 of them in continuous action, and all I could do was touch the Germans off just as fast as I could. I was sharpshooting all the time. I kept yelling at them to come down. 
I didn't want to kill any more than I had to. But it was they or I, and I was giving them the best I had. During the assault, six German soldiers in a trench near York charged him with fixed bayonets. York had fired all the rounds of his M1917 infield rifle, but drew his 45 Colt automatic pistol and shot all six soldiers before they could reach him. He used the technique he had perfected while turkey hunting back home in Tennessee. He would first take out the men in the rear so the soldiers in front of them wouldn't see them fall and kept running. Eventually, he worked his way up to the Germans in the front until they were all down. German Lieutenant Paul Jürgen Vollmer, commander of the 1st Battalion, 120th Landwehr Infantry, emptied his pistol trying to kill York while he was contending with the machine guns. Failing to injure York and seeing his mounting losses, he offered in English to surrender the unit to York, who gladly accepted. By the end of the engagement, York and his men marched 132 German prisoners back to U.S. lines. His actions silenced the German machine guns and were responsible for enabling the 328th Infantry to renew their attack to capture the Dockerville Railroad. York was promptly promoted to sergeant and received the Distinguished Service Cross. A few months later, a thorough investigation resulted in an upgrade to the Medal of Honor, which was presented to York by the Commanding General of the American Expeditionary Force, General John J. Pershing. In addition to the Medal of Honor, he received other medals, the Croix de Guerre and the Legion of Honor from France, and the Croix de Guerre Almertero and Montenegro from Italy. Overall, he received nearly 50 decorations for his actions in France. York's heroism went unnoticed in the press back home, even in Tennessee, until on April 26, 1919, in the Saturday Evening Post, after journalist George Petullo learned of York's story, he wrote an article that spoke of York's religious faith and skill with firearms, patriotic, plain-spoken, and unsophisticated way. In response, York was greeted as a hero upon his return from the war, including a five-day furlough to New York City and Washington, D.C. After the trip, York proceeded to Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, where he was discharged from the army, and then back to Tennessee for more celebration. He had been home for barely a week when on June 7, 1919, he married his childhood friend, Gracie Loretta Williams, in his hometown. York refused many offers to profit from his fame, including thousands of dollars offered for appearances, product endorsements, newspaper articles, and movie rights to his life story. Instead, he lent his name to various charitable and civic causes. To support economic development, he campaigned for the Tennessee government to build a road to service his native region of northeastern Tennessee. It was named the Alvin C. York Highway. During the 1920s, York was intimately involved in funding education throughout Tennessee. The Great Depression found him with lack of money, and he had to pull out many of his donations. As it was, he was never taught how to properly handle money. Even after he was ousted in the presidential race of 1936 by political and bureaucratic rivals, he continued to donate money. During World War II, York attempted to re-enlist in the army. However, at 54 years old, overweight, near-diabetic, and with evidence of arthritis, he was denied enlistment as a combat soldier. Instead, he was commissioned as a major in the Army Signal Corps, 
and toured training camps. He participated in bond drives in support of the war effort, usually paying his own travel expenses. General Matthew Ridgway later recalled that York created in the minds of farm boys and clerks the conviction that an aggressive soldier, well-trained and well-armed, can fight his way out of any situation. York also raised funds for war-related charities, including the Red Cross, and served on his county's draft board. Although York served during World War II with the honorary rank of colonel in the Army Signal Corps, and as a colonel with the 7th Infantry of the Tennessee State Guard, newspapers continued to refer to him simply as Sergeant York. Alvin York and his wife Gracie had eight children, six sons and two daughters, most named after American historical figures. There was Alvin York Jr., George Edward Buxton York, Woodrow Wilson York, Sam Houston York, Andrew Jackson York, Betsy Ross York, Mary Alice York, and Thomas Jefferson York. On September 2nd, 1964, at the age of 76, Alvin Cullum York died of a stroke while surrounded by his family in the Veterans Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. His wife sold most of the York farm to the state of Tennessee. The farm is now open to visitors as the Sergeant Alvin C. York State Historic Park. One of York's sons, Thomas Jefferson, was killed in the line of duty on May 7, 1972, while serving as constable in Tennessee. York's grandson is Major General Daniel L. York, commander of the 76th U.S. Army Reserve Response Command in Salt Lake City, Utah. Alvin C. York made a lasting impact on his community and on many generations. His inspiring story has been adopted by many people who have had troubled lives, but have still risen up and beaten the odds. May he be remembered for his tenacity, grit, never-ending determination, and devotion to his family, country, and his God. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Remember My Name podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at RememberMyNamePodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at RememberMyNamePodcast and Twitter at RMNPodcast. Now take a moment and remember this name, Alvin York. <laughs>